Well, we are nearing the end of a sermon series that we've been working through all summer long, or at least for the back end of the summer. Next week is actually our last week in this series. We've been asking ourselves the question over and over again, how does scripture shape how we sing? Last week, Benjamin took us to Acts 16 to show us the radical testimony of Paul and Silas singing in the midst of a Roman prison cell. I got to tell you, my wife and I were on the way back from New York traveling with our family. We listened to that message on the road and we were very inspired by your uh, rousing rendition of Wheels on the Bus. Well done, church. Good work. This morning, we'll be considering what I'll call a biblical fight song, a biblical fight song. In fact, this may be the most striking or at least the most unique account of a fight song in all of scripture. So let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Some of you may know this as you're turning as the account of Jehoshaphat's battle song. Second Chronicles 20. If you're in your Old Testament, you keep on turning past Genesis and the books of the law, you'll eventually get to the first and second books. There's three of them in a row. There's first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and then you get to first and second Chronicles. We'll be spending our time this morning in second Chronicles 20. Now, most of you here are probably familiar with the concept of a fight song. A fight song is simply a song that's meant to inspire you, to pump you up, to to get you in the right frame of mind as you tackle an obstacle in front of you. And one classic example of a fight song that has captivated an entire generation, most of you here will recognize it, It's, it's even transcended generational lines, is the song Eye of the Tiger. Any of you know that one? Some of you are going to start like thumping it in your head. Whenever you start to hear that beat roll out, some of us are just ready to throw down immediately. You're ready to tackle that treadmill or whatever obstacle it is that's in front of you head on. Maybe another example of a fight song since high school football officially kicked off this past week in Washington is Friday Night Football. When that band starts belting out its fight song, man, you are ready to go. Well, here this morning in 2 Chronicles 20, God's people are facing an obstacle that is much more serious than high school football or even excess calories. So let's pick up with our problem here in chapter 20, 2 Chronicles 20, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. After this... The Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, En Gedi. And Jehoshaphat was afraid, and set his face to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. I think it's hard for us to imagine this kind of danger. I mean, seriously, how many of you here have ever been in a situation where someone was actively trying to kill you? It's possible that some of you have been in in a situation like that in the face of battle. 
This is a massive problem. Imagine thinking, <laughs> there's a good chance that I may not get out of this alive. There's a good chance that our wives and children could be taken as slaves or maybe worse. And what heightens the fear of God's people here is that they know they are no match for this overwhelming horde of invaders. The enemy here is described in verse 2 as a great multitude. Later throughout the passage, we'll see it described as a great horde. It's in verse 12, verse 15, verse 24. This is a coalition force of three powerful nations. And Jehoshaphat knows, man, Judah can't hold a candle to this vast army. Their situation is so desperate that the whole nation gathers to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat declares a national fast, and from all corners of the land, men and women and uh, men and women and children gather to pray. And there's no doubt about it. And they're scared. Notice, though, what God's people do in their moment of desperation. In the words of the British theologian, uh, theologian, excuse me, I'm struggling this morning. The British theologian, Martin Selman, God's people, when they are at their most desperate moment, turn to prayer rather than despair. I think there's a lesson there for us, isn't there? When the fear starts to creep in, when the problem is, is overwhelming, when you feel your, your anxiety start to rise, remember that that's time to go to the God who holds the world in his hand. Turn to prayer rather than despair. That's exactly what God's people do. I want you to check out this prayer with me beginning in verse 5. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 5. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Now, we could spend a lot of time on Jehoshaphat's prayer. In fact, maybe that's something that you could do this week. You could uh, set some time aside to just meditate on this, this beautiful, desperate prayer of this man of God. Uh, but for our purposes today, we've got to get to the song that's coming later in this passage. Or should I say songs? There's actually three of them. 
So, uh, so I'm just going to bullet point then just a, a few highlights, a few elements of Jehoshaphat's prayer because it's, it's too good just to skip over here. Uh, a couple things that we see in this prayer that we should note. First, Jehoshaphat starts his prayer, look at verse 6, by looking up. He starts by looking up to God's character. He begins by recalling, by recounting God's power, his might, his sovereign rulership over the nations. By the way, that's a pretty good thing to do, wouldn't you agree, when there's a problem looming? When you feel insufficient to the task, just to begin to meditate on, to pray through God's character, his attributes. Second thing we see in Jehoshaphat's prayer, he's, he's looking up first, and, and then in verses 7 to 9, he begins to look back. He, he anchors his current reality, as bad as it is, to what God has done in the past. He starts to rehearse what God has done, how he's taken his people to a land flowing of milk and honey, and, and here they are, verses 7 to 9. Now, we've talked a lot about this lately, so we won't belabor the point. He starts looking up. He then turns to look back in prayer. And, and thirdly, he gets to the place where he just lays the problem out before the Lord. This is in verses 10 and 11. So as to say, God, here it is. You see it. Here's what's happening. This is bigger than we are. And finally, verse 12, he ends his prayer with help. He, he gives a simple and desperate plea here as if to show his dependence upon God. And, and I'm convinced this may be one of the most beautiful expressions of faithful dependence upon God that we find in all of Scripture. Look at the end of verse 12 again. Isn't this beautiful? We, he's praying to God and he says, we don't know what to do. We're out of options, God. But our eyes are on you. Maybe you need to make that your prayer here this morning with some things that you're going through or, or, or write that on the tablet of your heart so that you can, you can apply that prayer to a situation that, that might be facing you in the future. God, we, we're out of luck. We, we don't know what to do. We're out of resources on our own, but our eyes are on you. You know, in a culture where independence and self-sufficiency are so highly prized, we can't forget that the fundamental posture of our faith is not our independence. It's our dependence upon God. After all, isn't that what your Savior said in John 15, 5? When he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Remember when God told the Apostle Paul, no, He's carrying this thorn in his flesh, and man, it's eating him up. And he, he continues to bring it to the Lord and bring it to the Lord. And what was God's answer? No. This thorn in the flesh is going to stay, Paul. And we see God's exact words in 2 Corinthians 12, 19. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see the dependence there? I'm enough for you, Paul, God is saying. My grace is enough for you. My power shines through in the midst of your inadequacy, in the midst of your weakness and dependence. We see this writ large in Jehoshaphat's prayer, this posture of, 
Help, God. We need you. We've got nothing apart from you. You are our only hope. We had a, a moment like that, the Thomas clan, as we were driving back from vacation in New York this week. Uh, we, uh, we stopped by in Niagara Falls from visiting northern New York, where my family is from. And, and, I, and we decided, we, we got like a gaggle of kids with us, and Lindsay and I were trying to think about the best way to see the falls uh, with, with all these kiddos. And we read about the Maid of the Mist. Have you, have you heard about that? That boat ride that will like take you in, right? right in, surrounded by the falls is 600,000 gallons of water a second are like pounding around you. You got to wear these ponchos because you're all wet. Man, that's fantastic. And the best thing about that was that uh, children under six were free. Uh, and, <laughs> and since we have four of those, we thought that was a pretty, pretty good deal. Um, now, our older children were pumped for this boat ride and the younger ones, not so much. In fact, I don't know if we've got the picture or not. There it is. You, you can see little Finn here, uh, who, <laughs> who's about to turn five. Uh, and, and Finn asked this question, probably about the time that picture was snapped. He asked, Daddy, are we going over the falls as we're, as we're in the boat? And so we, uh, after having a little fun with that, we assure him, buddy, you can trust us. M Mommy and Daddy, we're not going anywhere. As a matter of fact, we're going to be with you the whole time. What did he need to know? He needed to know that someone who's in charge, someone who he can trust, is going to be there, be his strength, assure him that things would be all right. L later on, Finn was having a great time. We, we had two babies with us that were literally strapped to our chest. We can show you that picture as well. Went against all parenting manuals ever. We were told to put a plastic sheet over ourselves and the baby as they're like strapped there. And you can see Addie Grace uh, is like, ri we ripped a hole for her face through the poncho. This is a picture of dependence, isn't it? S snug up against my body. She's able to feel secure. Uh, and uh, man, we had, a, we had a great time there dependence. That's the picture I'm trying to get across to you. That's the picture that's happening here is God's people are at the end of their rope, at the end of their resources. All they have is their God. Since we're in the middle of a series on singing, it reminds me of a song that I've been singing all week long. It's by Sovereign Grace Music. The, uh, the chorus is simple. It goes like this. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Isn't that dependence? That's what, we've, that's what I've been singing this week. And, and that's where we find ourselves here in the text in 2 Chronicles 20. Let's keep reading here. Let's, let's get to uh, where God breaks into the account. God's people are in a bad place. Uh, and then we read God speak through into the middle of their mess in verse 13. Meanwhile... All Judah stood before the Lord and their little ones and their wives and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mattaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, 
but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them, and behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Man. This is not the prophet Jehaziel, who was a Levite, not, not a very likely prophet in this case, just speaking out on his own. This is not Jehaziel standing up and saying, It's alright guys. It's going to be okay. This is the Spirit of God. These are the words of God given from the Almighty to this man in their moment of need. And if this prophecy sounds a bit familiar, it's because it's a very close parallel here in 2 Chronicles 20 to what we see in the account of God splitting the Red Sea in two and how he spoke to Moses in Exodus 14. We see a lot of parallels. We don't have time to, to connect the dots now. Let's, let's keep moving. I simply want us to see two repeated phrases from God in this very brief prophecy. You know when God repeats himself, he doesn't do it for his benefit. He's trying to emphasize something to his people with their knees knocking. The first thing he says, not once, but twice to them in these words, is the repeated command. Look at verse 15, and then again in verse 17, the command to not be afraid. Oh, okay. I mean, this, this massive horde is coming against them, coming to kill and to ruin everything they know, everything they own. How in the world, God, are we supposed to not be afraid? Well, as usual, the answer, the antidote to fear, biblically, is always God's presence. Look at verse 17. It's God's presence which gives them the power to be courageous, the power to leave fear behind even in the midst of such a desperate situation. How much more, friends, if we just think about our lives here in 2022, on this side of the cross, how much more ought we to heed this command? Not to fear. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells all those who have trusted in Jesus. Jesus tells us his name is Emmanuel, God with us. There's no room for fear in our lives. Our human nature will often run in that direction. And like Jehoshaphat, we need to remind ourselves just to recount the character of God, who he is. We need to, if we're feeling seized with anxiety, with anguish, to look back over our shoulder to recount God's faithfulness in the past. He is indeed enough. God tells him twice, don't be afraid. Astonishingly, there's one other thing that God repeats also in verse 15 and verse 17. He tells them that Judah... We'll not even have to fight this battle, which is a bit strange. Wouldn't you agree? He says, listen, guys, you're not going to be participants in this battle, but rather spectators. 
The, little, the literal Hebrew phrase here in verse 15 and verse 17 is rendered a little bit choppy into English, but, but literally it's translated, it is not for you, the battle. It is not for you to fight. Again, just like that incident at the Red Sea where God's people were stuck in every conceivable way. Stuck. And God does it all, doesn't he? He splits the sea. He has them walk over on dry ground. And then he vanquishes the enemy. They're just sitting there gawking. The battle belongs to the Lord. Let's see their response to this amazing prophecy. Hint, before we begin reading in verse 18 again. This is where the singing starts. Verses 18 and 19, let's take them together. Then Jehoshaphat, in response to this amazing prophetic word from the Spirit of God through the mouth of Jehaziel, then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Verse 19, and the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. How do they respond? Well, they respond with adoration, verse 18. They respond with very loud praise. Again, this is the first time in the account that God's people are singing. It will not be the last. But let me ask a question before we keep rolling. Has their problem been resolved? No. So, just if you're tracking, the big, huge army that was like way bigger than them that's coming to kill them and take their land, it's still there, right? It's still coming for them. Yeah. And they're singing in response to the gracious word of God and their confidence that he is who he said, says he is, and he's good for it. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. God's people are able to sing, even with the enemy still intact. And I hope that hits home for some of you this morning. Even with the problem still looming, even with the diagnosis still very much in place, even with that relational strife boiling over, he's still God still worthy of our praise because of his word because of because of his pronouncement over our souls and our eternities we are able to sing and god's people although they know they're not exactly sure what's going to happen but they know god's going to take care of it they're not left sitting on their hands are they god still tells them get up and go I'm sure this must have been a freaky prospect they still have to obey. Let's, let's look at the next song that we encounter here in verses 20 and 21. They've heard the prophecy. They've responded to God's gracious words. Even before the salvation has come, they're singing. And now, this is the song which is most familiar here in the account. The second song of Second Chronicles 20, verses 20 and 21. And they rose early in the morning. And went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and 
you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Wow. I mean, amazing, right? Uh, this is utterly amazing. Can you imagine this? This is a suicide mission if God's not God. This is, this is preposterous. This is not in any like military tactical book, by the way, this strategy. But God's people are acting as if it's a done deal. Jehoshaphat calls his war council and they come up with their battle plan. What's the plan? Send the singers first. Right? Like before the guys with the weapons. Lead out with the musicians. Now, since when in the history of ever has this happened before? Never. I mean, this would never, ever, ever work. And talk about a fight song. The singers lead out in front of the army, declaring the goodness of God, echoing what we have heard over and over and over from the tombs of the Psalms, from the revelation God gave to Moses on the mountain in Exodus 34. Give thanks to the Lord. I mean, they're like marching to an army that's about to destroy them, singing, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. This is crazy. Unless God is who he says he is. And he is. This is quite a fight song. I think you would agree. The, the singers leading the army in a worship chorus which i think as i as i think and pray about the church today is sort of what we are we are a ragtag army wouldn't you agree in the midst of a spiritual battle and one of the weapons that god has given his people is praise it's praise let's do it well Let's see what happens here. The, uh, it's about to go down. Verse 22, they send the singers first. And let's read. This is the climax. Verse 22. And when they began to sing in praise, the Lord sent an ambush against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end to the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Now, this is a bit wild. This, I, I mean, this happened. I want you to see, though, I, we, we can't miss this. I want you to see the timing of when all this goes down. I want you to see the chronology. Here's the question. When did God take the enemy out? When? Look at verse 22. I don't know. Yeah, we got it up here. When? Just, just read your Bible. When? And when they began to sing in praise, that's when 
the Lord sent an ambush against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir. When did God do it? I mean, God could have done this however He wanted. I mean, elsewhere in Scripture, God sends an angel, one singular angel, to wipe out Sennacherib and his great hordes. 185,000 people, one angel. God can do whatever He wants. But how does God choose to win the battle here? Well, they don't have to pick up a sword. He waits until they start singing. He didn't tell them to sing, but he waits until they start singing. And that's when the victory is won. That's when God single-handedly took out this great horde. Now, the next question is, how? How did he do it? We just saw it here in verse 23. He threw them into confusion so that they killed one another. You know, as you do. <laughs> what? God actually does a similar thing. This isn't the only time we see this in Scripture. We see this in Judges 7, where, where Gideon, with 300 measly men, is facing 135,000 of the enemy, and with a couple torches and some clay pots and a war cry, God turns the enemy in on themselves. Actually, not altogether dissimilar from what Benjamin was leading us to, to consider last weekend in Acts 16. How when Paul and Silas are in prison, in stocks, their feet stretched apart to the breaking point and left in anguish all night long. It's midnight. And what are they doing? They were, they were singing. Does that break some categories for you? It does for me. And they're singing triggered an earthquake and God wrought deliverance. What's the point? The point is that God can and does use the praises of his people when he chooses to do powerful things. Your singing matters. And I'll get lopsided on this. Right? That doesn't mean that something magical is happening as we're singing in the heavenlies all the time. doesn't mean we can manipulate God with our songs. What this means is our Heavenly Father delights in the praises of His people. He inhabits the praises of His people. And when His people sing to Him in worship and in truth, in spirit and in truth, powerful things can happen in God's name. All right. Let's see the aftermath here. Verses 24 and 25. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were the dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. Verse 25. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. So the, the Judean soldiers, who still have not lifted a weapon, arrive at the watchtower, verse 24, a place that overlooks the desert as the vast horde had been advancing. And when they get a glimpse of what's coming... What they find is it's already done. The only thing they can see is dead bodies. God's already done all the work. No one had escaped. 
And please don't miss this. This is, a, I think, a very helpful, germane, spiritual point for us today. Not only did God accomplish the victory in the battle through no merit of theirs, but also, I want you to see this, not only did God do it all, God won the battle, but also Judah got to collect the plunder. Didn't they? Three days! They got to collect all the spoil and the plunder from the battle that they never even had to fight, by the way. Now, might this apply to us in any way today? Well, I think it sounds a whole lot like the gospel. Think about it. Jesus, your Savior, has done all the work, has He not? Jesus paid it all. All to Him I own. Sin had left a crimson stain. He, Jesus, washed it white as snow. In His body, He assumed the debt, the sin, the consequences for our failure, our rebellion against Him. Jesus achieved the victory over sin and death alone. And not only, friends, has His victory become our victory, become our salvation through His death and resurrection on the cross. But also, listen now, also we get to walk through life each and every day made rich with the spoils of war. Don't we? The spoils of war that, that have resulted from His victory, not ours. Now, we are not talking about physical Plunder. We're not talking about physical riches or, or wealth. Think of the spiritual blessings, friends, that have been bestowed upon you in addition to your salvation. Think of the peace which is yours in Jesus eternally. Think of the joy which He has given you. Think of the purpose now that you have in life knit in Christ. Most precious of all. Think about the gift of God Himself, God the Holy Spirit, who lives within you, follower of Jesus, and gives you everything you need, everything necessary for life and godliness. Not only has God won the battle through no good of yours, no good of mine, He has given you the riches of the spoil of the enemy and given you everything you need to walk in victory. Let's finish it out. Verses 26, we'll read to verse 30. On the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of that place has been called the valley of Barakah to this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries. So that when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet. For God gave him rest all around. Friends, this is now the third time God's people are singing here in this account. It's after the plunder, after three days of just collecting all of what God has done, making themselves 
rich on his victory. And the only thing left to do, the only right response after they're done is praise. So they assemble, verse 26, in the valley of Barakah. Literally, translated from the Hebrew to the English, the valley of blessing. The valley of praise. And their praise does spill over from the valley where they start, the valley where the victory was won, into the city. As, as Jehoshaphat and his army come back rejoicing, we see in verse 27, their praise is marked with joy. We see in verse 28, their praise is accompanied with musical instruments, with harps and lyres and trumpets. So, let's get this straight. There was praise before the battle, that, verse 19. There was praise during the battle. That's when God chose to work the victory, when they started to sing. That's verses 21 and 22. Then there's praise after the battle, verse 28. So in other words, there's pre-praise, there's present praise, and there's post-praise. What do God's people do? In view of His victory, they sing. And that's why we keep beating this drum here at Friendship Community Church. We must be a people given to praise. And now, it's our turn. We're going to close with a very old hymn written by Martin Luther in the days of the Reformation. It's called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. As Ruth Ann makes her way up with uh, some of the music team, uh, I'm just going to read you one of the verses we're about to sing to God. This is verse 2 in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The words are a little small. I'll just read it for you here. We're about to say this to the Lord. Did we in our own strength confide? Well, our striving would be losing. We're dependent upon you, God. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is He. That's the gospel we're singing. Lord Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same, and He must win the battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. Let's sing this very old fight song together. I'm going to pray and we'll, we'll let it rip. Father, we love you and we just come to you right now asking for your grace. God, asking for the grace to see you and to believe you before the battle, during the battle, after the battle in our lives. God, we thank you for this remarkable example of faithfulness, your faithfulness, God, and the faithfulness that you wrought through those weak and dependent people that you call your own. And our confession is this morning, God, we are those weak and dependent people. So we pray over all our lives. We pray over this church. We pray over our nation. We pray over the sad state of the church in so many parts of the world. Lord, we don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. And we know, God, the battle is yours. It belongs to you. So we pray now 
as we come to you, our mighty fortress, that you would help us to sing old songs and new songs. Help us to sing for your glory, God. Let your will be done in Jesus' name. Would you stand and sing?